When I... Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 32. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may be benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and passionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, if we could live like this, we got it made, I think, don't y'all? This is God's Word, and you may be seated. That's a guy I make look really tall. <laughs> and I agree with everything that he said. Uh, and that's what we're going to be doing, is we're going to be looking at this passage, breaking it down week by week. But before we do that, um, we're going to pray. And uh, right before we do that, just uh, we want to say hello to everyone that's streaming with us right now. Uh, and there's all kinds of folk, as you know, that are streaming with us. There are folk that can't make it here on a regular basis on Sunday morning. And there are people that are, are, are traveling. And there are people that, for one reason or another, find themselves uh, maybe in a hospital room or, or someplace like that. And uh, we want you to know that even though you're not right here with us in this room, we think about you and we miss you. And we want you to know that you're never far, you're never far from our thoughts. And so we want you to know that we're glad that you're with us this morning, even though you're not with us in the immediate sense, but you're streaming with us. Let's begin with a word of prayer, and let's bow our heads one more time and ask God to bless us as we get ready to study His Word. Father, we're grateful for just for so much that it, it, it boggles our mind and defies our even our best imagination to know and to see and to be able to express the gratitude for the the seen and unseen ways that you sustain us in this life. And not only have you brought us unto yourself by forgiving our sins and, and, and giving to us the righteousness of your Son, but you never abandon us. You never abandon us. You're always there, even in our darkest moments. And because all of this is true and so much more, Father, we commit ourselves again to you this morning to live out the implications of our salvation, to live as disciples, to apprentice ourselves to your Son 
in order to live in such a way that it brings glory to you in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think, in our emotional life, in the way that we react and respond to the different things that happen in this life to us and around us. So to this end, as we begin to study, Father, this, this great text that you have given us by Paul's hand, we ask you to give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in order to be turned and transformed. And this we pray with all of our hearts in the name of our Messiah, Christ Jesus. Amen. It was about 20 years ago, more or less, that our church uh, put together a document that basically spelled out what it meant to be the MacArthur Park Church of Christ. Well, after about two decades, this last year, our elders and our staff got together to kind of go into that process one more time to, to refresh that, that mission statement. And after a lot of Saturday mornings and Saturday afternoons and some Monday nights and a lot of time of pray, praying and reading and studying and discussing, uh, for the, the, the leadership of this church, it kind of boiled down to two scriptures. And the mission of the church is found uh, all over the Bible, obviously, but there are two scriptures in the Gospel of Matthew that I think really flesh it out for us. The first is Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37, where there is this fellow that comes to the Christ, and he asks him, you know, there are all of these laws and all of this scripture, and there's the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature and all of this stuff. What does it boil down to? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. That those three things, loving God with heart, soul, and mind, the first and the greatest commandment. But there's a second that's like it, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law and all of the prophets and everything in between hang on those two commandments. And then late, late in Jesus' ministry, and in fact, right before he ascends into heaven to the right hand of God in exaltation after the resurrection and the death on the cross, he has gathered together his disciples, all except one, Judas, who is no longer with them, the betrayer. And as he is getting ready to ascend into heaven, he gives them these instructions, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and know that, lo, I'm with you to the very end of this age. Now, it's out of those two statements, as well as all of the supporting scripture that you find throughout the Old and New Testament, that we came up with the mission statement that is behind us. Let's say it together. Love God. Love people, change the world. Now, what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is to spend some time drilling down into that last statement, change the world. What does it mean to change the world? Well, no one is going to argue much that the world is a perfect place and doesn't need any improvement. Most people that pay any attention to the news whatsoever or even have open eyes in their neighborhood or even in their own family can tell you that there are some places for improvement in the world. So the big question is, how do you make a difference in the world for good? How, how do you live your life or, or get involved, your, your life somehow engaged in the world, in the community, in the city, in the neighborhood? How do you do that in such a way that it makes a difference, that it brings 
that it brings improvement, that it brings joy, that it brings a sense of well-being to the people around you. That's the monumental task, and that's very much an intimidating task. Now, before we answer that from God's Word, let's, let's just answer it, or let's, let's think about some answers that are given from both sides of that coin, the religious side and the secular side. Two from the secular, two from the religious from the secular side, one of the answers for making the world a better place is the formation and the implementation of new laws. Basically, it's when there is something that takes place that is bad in the world, that's formulate and that's implement new laws to keep that from ever happening again. That the getting the laws right and getting the enforcement of those laws right will make everything okay. The problem is, and you know this as well as I do, we don't need to uh, go over this ground very, very much, but we, we, we recognize that it's those laws out there that even as good as they might be and as well-intentioned as they might be, they're never going to change a human heart. That the laws do not make us moral. I was listening to a speech by, uh, actually it wasn't a speech, it was an interview by ex-president Jimmy Carter who said uh, this last week, that when he left office some 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, that one out of every thousand Americans was in prison. He said today it's seven out of every 1,000 Americans. I mean, you don't have to go very deep into the statistics to see that we're kind of going backwards when it comes to making better human beings. The second way, from a secular standpoint, is better education or economics. Do we need better laws? Yes. Do we need better education? Yes. Do we need better economics? Yes. But do smarter, upwardly mobile people become the answer to the world? You know, terrorism is sponsored around the world and the cause of a great amount of suffering in our world because of affluence and because of education. That's not, to, not blaming those two things, but those two things have contributed to the ability for terrorism to exist in the world today. Well, from the religious standpoint, for some, it's just a matter of getting saved. And you know what? Salvation is a really, really important thing. Salvation is incredibly important, and it's the reason that Jesus died. But here's the thing. At the center of being lost, is not where you are going, but who you are. Think for, <coughs> think for example, back to the fourth verse of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I, I want you to know one of the things that God is doing for you, and that is that He chose you before the beginning of the earth, before the creation of the earth, he chose you to be holy and to blameless, to be blameless. Now here's the question. Is holiness a requirement to go to heaven? Now before you answer that, let's think about what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14. Without holiness, that is without, you know, this this uh, becoming like God in our manner and in our being, without holiness, no one will see God. How about church work? How about church work? Well, a lot of what we do in the community 
In fact, I would argue that everything that we try to do in the community, from holiday harvest to Oak Grove to you name it, those are fantastic things, and we even need to ramp up our efforts in the community as well as what we're doing inside of our church family to minister to each other. But I would also argue that you don't necessarily even have to be a believer to do those things. I remember one of the first churches that I worked with, a church up in Virginia, that the star of our fellowship dinners was a guy that I'm not even sure believed in God. But he was always there setting up. He was always there with the best barbecued ribs you had ever eaten. The question, how do you make the world a better place? How do you change the world? Jesus gives us the answer to the issue of changing the world when he says in Matthew chapter 28, you go and you make disciples of all nations. The world becomes a different place when humans become different. And that's what the gospel does. Disciples, people who have uh, apprenticed themselves to Jesus, people who are transformed and saved by the gospel, and that grace is, you know, if we were to define grace, grace is God accomplishing for you what you cannot do on your own. That's what grace is. It's this gift the gift of salvation, but it's also the gift of transformation and the gift of sanctification. It's not just being saved, but being changed as well. These disciples who have aligned themselves to the will of God and apprenticed themselves to Jesus become the game changers. They become the game changers. Now, you know, what in the world is a game changer? Well, a game changer is a person who by their very presence, by their very being, by their words, by their actions, by their emotional life, by all of these things, creates a significant shift in the outcome of a game. Let me illustrate. Uh, Three from the sporting world. Michael Jordan was a game changer. The way that he seemed to be able to walk on air just kind of changed basketball to the kind of sport that we have today. In the area of football, Lawrence Taylor, one of the greatest linebackers who ever played, by his very presence in the middle of the field, could change a game. In the the most popular sport in the world, soccer, Lionel Messi from Argentina, now playing in Europe, in Spain, is a game changer. A disciple of Jesus of Nazareth shows that power by a new identity. That as a disciple of Jesus, it's not just about doing things, but doing things in the name of Jesus. Uh, That's Colossians 3.17. If you go about another six verses into that, he says it's working from the very soul, from your very soul, from the center, from your heart, for God and not for men. Now, stepping out of this just for a second, Everybody takes into all of their activities, whether it's, it's, it's being a, a spouse or it's being a, a, a part of a family or a, a school, a neighborhood, a, a place at work, everybody takes a theology wherever they go and in whatever they do. It may be atheistic, and believe me, athe- atheists have a theology. Their theology is, is that this world exists without a God and there is no God, and that's, that's the theology that they take into the workplace. There is this idea of deism where, you know, God created the the heavens and the earth and then he kind of split and allowed us to operate by the laws of nature. And so we go and we do our work or we do our things on a daily basis. 
and we believe that God created everything and we believe that God put the natural law into place but that God has gone away and that we're on our own when we go into these places to do what it is we're supposed to do or it's a disciple idea a discipled theology that says that wherever God is and wherever a person who in faith is living as the disciple that they live and work and participate in what's happening in the world around them in sort of this interactive way. That God is always at the elbow in whatever it is that we do. It's Jesus saying to his disciples right before he's crucified in John chapter 14 and verse 10 that God is doing his works through me. Now that kind of person, God, that he's making you into affects the lives of everyone around you. When you live powerfully like that with this new identity, it changes everything and everyone around you. Think about this kind of person in marriage or in family life or the workplace or at school. Out of that list that, that uh, Roger just read for us, think about a person who has a high standard for honesty and integrity. That there is a powerful vulnerability or transparency about that person. Or here's a person that is not driven by anger. Anger is not a sin. And the emotion of anger is not a sin, but for that to be a primary emotion, it is. But here's a person who is not driven by anger, even in the most unjust situations or the unjust circumstances. Or someone who realizes that their life can be useful to somebody else, that they, are, they, they have become, by God's presence in their life, a giver rather than a taker. They understand that there is godliness and ministry at work. Or this person whose words never tear anyone down. But they build people up. And not just build people up, but they build people up with the truth. Or able to become something that's beyond their own efforts and their own attempts. There's emotional self-control, getting rid of anger and bitterness and all of these kinds of things. Kind and compassionate. How about a person who is able to, to employ and exhibit and model forgiveness? You know, when we sit down with, um, with young couples as they're getting ready to get married, one of the things that we say to them in the premarital counseling is, is that forgiveness is one of the, the least utilized or least developed uh, life skills that most human beings have. That what most human beings are adept at is remembering wrongs that have been done to them and looping those or playing those over again in their mind over and over and over again until it leads to bitterness and to resentment. But think about that short list in Ephesians chapter 4. What kind of, a, of an impact would people who are putting their arms around that entire list have on the community around them? Well, we're going to begin this morning with just an understanding before we jump into each of these, this, these next couple of weeks by understanding discipleship from this perspective. Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off that old self. The old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the what? The new self. And the new self is created to be like whom? God. When you put on that new self, Paul says, it is this new self created to be like God in true righteousness and, there's that word again, holiness. So three things and then we're done. Number one, discipleship is not just a change in habits, 
but a change in character. A, a lot of time, in fact, even in my own life, when I became a Christian uh, at the, the, the tender age of 13, my understanding of what it meant to be a Christian is that every Sunday, Sunday night and Wednesday night, I'm supposed to go to church. And I was supposed to pray and read the Bible. And it was habits, like, you know, you're not supposed to lie to the, the, the IRS or cheat on your income tax. It's, it just, it, it's all of these habits that you begin to implement into your life. But what the Bible begins to describe as a disciple is not just a change in habit, but just a change in character. The way that Paul describes being a Christian is taking off this old self, not habits, but a self and putting on a new self. It's not just a change of lifestyle or, or a change of philosophy. He's not even saying that it's a change of information. Like at one time I believed the earth was flat and now I believe that it's round. What he's saying is that now you believe everything that the Bible says about you before you became a Christian and everything the Bible says about you after the new birth. Now earlier I said that at the center of being lost is not where you are, uh, going but it's who you are think about what paul says to titus when titus is there as a young man ministering on the island of crete he says you know think about who we were at one time before christ came into our life he says at one time we were foolish we were disobedient we were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures he's describing the old self a character of who they once were and who we once were we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us two things, through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. The gospel changes not just your destination, but it changes you. The old self becomes a new self. Created to be like God, Paul says in Ephesians 4, to, to be like God in righteousness. That means that everything that you do in your life, now that there is a new self, gets challenged. It gets questioned. What is it that you're doing with your life? How are you doing it? Why you do the way or, or the, why you do the things that you do? That all of those reasons, all of those questions, all of those motivations become challenged because it is a new self that you are putting on. It all changes because there's a new self that is being formed in you. Which Paul would say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, is this it's Christ being formed in you. Which leads to a second thing. It's not just changing habits, brothers and sisters. It's a change of character. We begin to be created to look like God's righteousness and holiness. But on top of that, growing as a disciple of Jesus is intentional and it's incremental. There's no such thing as an overnight transformation of character. Growing as a disciple of Jesus doesn't happen overnight, but it happens through space and time. Think about how you learned how to read. I, I remember when I was... You know, it's like half a century ago now. But you think about how you learned how to read. You learned the letters of the alphabet. You learned the song A, B, C, D, right? And then after you got the letters and the names of the letters down, you begin to get the sounds down. A T sounds like a T. And an M sounds like a M. And a P sounds like a P. 
And then all of a sudden, about the time you get into kindergarten or you get into the first grade, they begin to present you with these three-letter words. I remember to this day, the day I I began to read. And I even remember the very first uh, word that I ever read in my life. Uh, We had kind of gone in Wichita Falls, Texas, where I was going to the Thomas Fowler Elementary School up here on the screen. There was a lady by the name of Eldridge who was just a wonderful first grade teacher and very patient, and she was teaching us how to read. And it wasn't Dick and Jane, but it was about a dog. And she would describe the dog, and she'd say, here's his name, and she would show us the word T-I-P. How many of you learned to read with Tip, the dog, and Mittens, the kitten? I it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful memory that first day when you learn how to read, right? And so there was a circle of us around this table, and she began to talk to us about the letters that were in that word tip. And she'd ask us, what does a T sound like? What does an I sound like? What does a P sound like? And I mean, you know, and she would give us a clue. He is, he is, he is brown all over except he's white at the blank of his tail. And we, she'd go, so what? How do you say T-I-P? And we'd say bottom. You know, we'd say something like that. And then all of a sudden we got it, and then it made sense. And then it made sense. But it was incremental. You don't learn how to read the word tip by grace. You learn it by putting yourself on a trajectory for learning to read. And that's what happens when you decide, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. It happens incrementally. And when you begin to put yourself in those places and in those positions and to in incorporate those practices like prayer and the study of God's Word and contemplating God's Word and contemplating the glory of God and meditating on God's Word and all of those things that, uh, that we talk about in terms of the disciplines that lead to spirituality and spiritual transformation, what you begin to see through space and time is that you begin to change bit by bit, piece by piece, percentage point by percentage point until you find yourself growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But it's also intentional. It's not only what it is that God is doing in you through His Spirit, through His Word, through all of these things, but it's also you directly deciding that you're going to take off the old self and you're going to put on the new self. And then finally, the life of a disciple is a public life. And there's so much to say here, but here's the thing. We live in a culture that is okay with religion as long as we put it in a folder in a private domain and nobody else has to see it. But that's not the life of a disciple as it is described or lived by the Christ. The life of Jesus was a life that was lived publicly. The life of Jesus was one that was lived where it could be observed and questioned and thought about and contemplated and embraced and even rejected. And when you think about the life of Jesus, his life was observable and it was at the same time experiential, which means that when people came into Jesus' presence, they had an experience with God because the Christ was being formed or Uh, because he was the Christ, but when they have an experience with us, because Christ is being formed in us, there is an experience in the same way. When people come into contact with us and they have conversations with us or they interact with us, there should be an experience of there's something different about this person that opens my eyes 
or, 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 or makes me wonder or makes me think that maybe something is missing in my own life or there's something that needs to happen in my life to change me. You know, this is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? That when, when you become a disciple of His, you become like a light in the world. You become a light and you become like a city that is set on a hill. Regardless of how far away you are, you can, you can see the light in the darkness of that city that's set on the hill. It is, it is so bright and it is so visible and it's so demonstrable and, and a manifestation of light in the darkness that nobody can walk by without seeing it. He says not only that, nobody lights a lamp and then covers it up with a, a, a bushel basket. Nobody does that because that's not what you do with light and that's not what you, you uh, lit the lamp with in the first place. But you put it on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. And then he says this, your life is like light. You know what that's like? You do your good deeds in such a way that God gets the glory and you don't necessarily get the thanks. That's what it means to live as light. That's what it means to be observable and, 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 and to give people an experience of what the gospel is like when they come into contact with you. And that life is described by Paul in Ephesians 4. Somebody that knows how to speak the truth. And it has an integrity about them. And they're not driven by anger, but they're kind and they're compassionate. They know how to forgive. They're being transformed by the Spirit. They know not to be a, a, a taker, but a giver. And they know that God has blessed them with whatever work He has given them in order to take care of other people, to bless other people in the way that you have been blessed by God's giving to you of His Son. That those kinds of people, when they have aligned themselves up with God's will and are being transformed, not just saved, but sanctified and made holy, it makes a difference wherever they go. Now when it comes to that original question about, about how do you change the world? It's by becoming a disciple of Jesus and it's in making disciples of Jesus where people become righteous and they become holy from the inside out. And it's not just a facade. It's not just an action, but it's something that has integrity through and through. It's something that's in our soul and in our heart. And it's something that makes a difference. You know, when we were living in Brazil, uh, first or second year or so, one of our good friends, uh, became one of our really good friends, uh, a fellow by the name of Milovan, uh, gave my daughter Jessica, when she was about three or four years old, gave her uh, a fish bowl that had a couple of goldfish in it. And Jessica, he, she had never had fish before, and she got an explanation from Milovan, who could speak pretty good English at the time, an explanation of what that was all about. And so she decided that she was going to name those two fish. The boy fish would be Milovan. The girl fish would be his girlfriend, Selma. How you tell the difference between male and female goldfish? I don't know and probably don't want to know. But she loved those fish, and every day she would talk to Milovan and Selma, the goldfish. And then one day she came and into our bedroom and said, Dad, you need to come and look at Milovan. Uh, Milovan's doing a trick. And so I went in to see what this trick was that Milovan was doing, and you know what the trick was? He was swimming upside down, which meant that Milovan, as I told Jessica, had gone to heaven. And Selma was kind of swimming around and doing the things that a live goldfish does, and Milovan was dead. And it, it led to a discussion, which later on was kind of a setup for a discussion about uh, a parakeet that died about five years later. 
but it was a it was a it was a uh, it was a time for me to be able to talk to my daughter about life and death. And you know the funny thing about goldfish is that when a goldfish is there in the bowl, you can tell whether or not it has life in it or it's dead. There's no question. And a, a, a fish, a goldfish that is alive, is able to swim and to dart and to eat and to go up and to go down and to go sideways and do all of these different things that a fish that is animated by life is able to do. And you can observe it and you see it and you know it. And in a way, that's what it is that God calls us as disciples to manifest our own faith and our own life in Christ is as those that are observable and having life in them. That there is an animation about them. There is a life about them. There are things that they are able to do. One of the most important things that a human being can learn to do in this life is to change. And some of the changes are possible without God. But the most important changes, the ones that make the difference in life and death in a person only come to us from God. And, and we, have to de- we have to decide in the way that we live, are we going to be someone that people are able to see? And there's a life in that person that is so different. What can it be? What is it? I've got to find out what it is in that person, whether they're in an up moment or in a dark moment, whether it's a light moment or a, 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 a sorrowful moment and a deep moment in their life, regardless of what it is, there is something about them in their life that they're able to move and to keep going that I don't have. And then in the way that we live our life, there is a true difference between seeing that which has life and that which doesn't. And that's the beginning of how we make a difference in our neighborhoods, in our community, and in our city, and in our state, and in this world. It's by making disciples and being a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, this morning, we're going to sing a song right now, and it's going to be an invitation. And the invitation is, if you have been a, a, a Christian for a long time, or a short time, and you, you realize that, you know, for you, it was really just about being saved and nothing else, but you see the need for your life to be transformed, either by the things we've studied this morning, or you see it in just the experience of living day after day after day, that the faith is empty because it's not making a difference in your life right now. You're saved, but nothing else has changed and you want that to change so that that life is in you and it makes a difference, that you become that light, then we're going to give you an opportunity to come down to the front and talk to these shepherds about what it may be that's troubling you or to send forth a prayer request that we can pray for you. Or it might be that you realize that you're that fish that's swimming upside down and there is no life in you and that the only life that counts is the one that God gives because it's not only significant and fulfilling and abundant in this life, but it's eternal in the life to come. These shepherds want to talk to you about what it means to be baptized and what it means to change your life and to confess, to make the confession that Jesus is Lord and not just a friend, but that He's King of your life and Savior at the same time. If that describes you this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together.